I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. The Bank for International Settlements, otherwise known as the Central Bank for Central Banks, is an integral part of the global monetary system and each year releases its much-anticipated annual economic report, providing an insider's look and roadmap for some of the world's major developments, including CBDCs. And in a special edition of Fintech Beat, I am delighted to have the author of this year's work stream on central bank digital currencies, Yun San Shen. Now, Yoon is a former Princeton economist who serves as the economic advisor and head of research at the BIS and is widely considered one of the world's most prominent economists. So sit back for some breaking news as he'll be giving us a personal tour of the BIS's most recent guidance on digital assets. Yoon, thanks so much for making it onto the show. Thanks, Chris. It's uh, great to be on your show. Let's jump right into it. Uh, the BIS's words are listened to carefully from Brussels to Wall Street. Uh, can you give us a quick elevator speech on the high points of the paper? And, and how do you think you've moved the ball forward as compared to last year's chapter on CBDCs? Yeah, Chris. So last year, we um, you know, laid out a kind of principled case for the, for the role of the central bank um, in the monetary system including the, uh, the issuance of central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. This year, what we're doing is going into um, some of the details of the design choices and also uh, trying to take account of, uh, you know, through the design choices of how uh, you want to take on board some of the, uh, uh, the really big picture policy questions. So, so um, um, if you like, it's, uh, it's why CBDCs um, and, and, and how CBDCs. So that's the, that's the big sort of focus uh, for this year's paper, for this year's chapter. What then are the points of emphasis, at, at least thematically? Broadly speaking, what we're trying to do is to, is to outline um, the centrality of data and why that really motivates central banks' issuance of CBDCs. I mean, data really is at the heart of the digital economy. And it has two broad um, policy implications. One is on the competition, uh, because the payment system is uh, very strong in its network effects in the sense that the more people come onto the, uh, onto the system, the more useful it is for others to join. And what this means is that sometimes it can be very prone to concentration. Uh, for example, in China, the two largest uh, uh, digital uh, payment uh, providers, they take something like a 94% in the market share in mobile payments. Um, and we're also you know, very um, aware of the, the debates um, that are going on uh, with the role of big techs uh, in financial services. Um, so this has both an economic um, angle, which has to do with um, concentration of economic uh, uh, power, but also in terms of data privacy. How do you um, protect uh, uh, individuals? How do you safeguard individuals' data? Uh, how do you protect individuals against uh, uh, you know, unwarranted intrusion, both from commercial and from official um, you know, sources? 
We will jump into uh, both of those issues in a second, but I will say I found your chapter really interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, One was the distinct tone taken with regards to both crypto and stablecoins. The the report was pretty blunt, uh, I suppose, in terms of its assessment of Bitcoin and stablecoins. What was the staging or motivation there? And and maybe you could uh, contextualize just where the bank stands. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that it's uh, you know that different from what we have written in um, in previous years, and uh, the portion that we um, that we devote to uh, cryptocurrencies and uh, and also stablecoins is pretty small as part of the chapter. I mean, we wanted to focus on um, the uh, you know the really key design challenges, but. Um, you know, our view of cryptocurrencies is that, uh, um, you know, they're not really a payment instrument. Uh, if anything, they are more like a, like a speculative asset. Um, and if you look at those with a public interest perspective, I mean, if you look at them uh, with, the, with the question, you know, what, are, you know what, what kind of public goods do they serve? Um, you know, it's, it's not as obvious as... Uh, it, um, you know, when we you know compare with uh, uh, with some of the enthusiasm that they seem to elicit, that they actually perform a very uh, you know important public policy goal, and so uh, we're rather cool on cryptocurrencies. Um, and uh, what we want to do in this chapter is to focus much more on the practical issues about uh, improving the payment system uh, for the public good. I mean, this is, after all, um, you know the the when we design something as important as the monetary system, we should look at that um, with, uh, you know, from the perspective of um, uh, what kind of public goods that do they provide and how well do they provide it. I think those are really important observations, in part since they reflect uh, basic concerns with, as you mentioned, varying design features of crypto. And I and I think that one of those core features or choices uh, that we also see in the conversation on central bank digital currencies uh, is is the network's consensus mechanism, which can uh, or or tends to involve iterations of proof of work versus proof of stake, though uh, there are obviously others. Um, do less centralized systems, in your view, lead to more uh, socially optimal outcomes when thinking through the issues arising from uh, the concentration of of economic power? And and how do those design choices play out when thinking through issues uh, like retail and wholesale CBDCs? So, Chris, I think that's a very good point. Uh, you know, there is a debate which uh, talks about the uh, the merits of having a decentralized consensus uh, mechanism as a, as a safeguard against, uh, you know, the centralization of, um, of decision-making. Uh, it, uh, uh, you know, it provides some governance safeguards and that it's not simply having copies of the ledger uh, around it's uh, so it's not that kind of um, you know duplication uh, of the uh, of the copies for safekeeping, but rather that having a decentralized mechanism, uh, you know, you can um, uh, inject uh, you know more robust governance uh, in the form of checks and balances, and uh, you know checks and balances are a very familiar idea. Now um, the decentralized mechanism uh, that's much more common in wholesale CBDCs, uh, which are uh, those that are applied to uh, to financial intermediaries, uh, you know, paying each other, and there is in fact a box in the chapter uh, describing um, uh, the wholesale CBDC that the BIS Innovation Hub uh, jointly developed with the uh, with the Swiss National Bank called uh, Helvetia. 
It turns out that a decentralized mechanism, you know, although it has some advantages, um, uh, um, it doesn't really have the 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 bandwidth to serve as a kind of retail CBDC, um, you know, a uh, 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 ledger updating process. So most of the discussions in the retail CBDC discussion, which is the idea that you make available um, a direct claim, a direct claim on the central bank uh, in digital form to everyday users. Um, so for that retail CBDC discussion, it's almost always the case that we're talking about the centralized ledger. So something that uh, is either updated by a trusted party like the central bank, or it's updated by the financial intermediaries like commercial banks and other non-bank PSPs. And then the issue really has to do with, uh, you know, how do you prevent unwarranted concentration of data uh, in the hands of a few or in the hands of, uh, indeed, the central bank itself, right? I mean, uh, the central bank is a public institution, is, you know, it's accountable, but even the central bank should not have access to everything uh, because, you know, that is a hugely, um, uh, that's a huge concentration of data, which, you um, uh, if we think about good governance, it's not a good idea. Uh, you know, we need to have checks and balances even in that kind of context. And so um, what we do in the chapter is to go into some detail um, in how you could, uh, you know, think about the data governance, even in a centralized ledger, even in a CBDC system where it's the central bank that is, up, that is ultimately updating it. So looking at it all, what policy implications are arising for competition for data as you observe uh, certain kinds of rollouts or, or even patterns that, that you're seeing in the retail space? So you know, one um, uh, set of lessons uh, you know, we can draw from the current generation of the so-called retail fast payment system. So these are, if you like, the top of the range conventional payment systems. It's, it's what um, the FedNow system will be when FedNow comes on stream. Um, it's really the top of the range in that uh, you know, uh, uh, there are now quite a few countries where these retail fast payment systems are you know, in full operation. Uh, you know, they've been tried and tested. And what's happening in those systems is to really address the data governance issue, both for the, uh, the competition aspects and financial inclusion, as well as the data governance aspects. And what you do is, uh, first of all, you want to give ownership of the data to the users. So they're the ones who then, you know, can actually give it to the payment service provider. Or if you want to make a loan application, you can provide it to the bank uh, so that you know, they can assess your credit and so on. But it's up to the users to provide that data. And uh, uh, But that's not enough because if you just pr provide the data, that's going to be like a data dump and no one's going to be really be able to use it properly. So you need to supplement it with the appropriate technical devices which actually make the data exchange you know, more productive. So this, so this is where these so-called APIs come in. APIs stand for Application Programming Interfaces. What they do is they actually make computer programs talk to each other. And the crucial point here is that it allows different providers to use different pieces of the data, but in a secure way, so that uh, you, know, you have access to those pieces that are absolutely necessary for you to conduct a particular transaction, but you should not be able to see the rest of it. So you know, one example of this is so-called um, uh, an account information service uh, 
API where you open the bank app of bank A, and then you can check the balances of bank B uh, through this bank A's uh, um, app. And that's because the API allows that communication between the, the bank's uh, um, you know, two apps. And uh, you know, when I do that, um, bank B shouldn't, uh, you know, um, all it needs to know is that it's me. So if I can prove that it's me by having the right uh, uh, password, and I can, you know, if it's a two-factor authentication, I can do the, two, you know, the second factor. As long as they satisfied it's me, they shouldn't, you know, need to know, uh, you know, my payment history, my home address, uh, and my other personal details. And this is where, uh, you know, the data concentration really gets, um, you know, uh, um, addressed because it really, you know, fragments that data. Uh, everyone has a piece of the jigsaw puzzle, but no one has the full picture other than the individual. And this is the you know really sort of big uh, you know uh, uh, technical breakthrough, and this is you know nothing other than public key cryptography, which you're very familiar with. This has been around since the 1970s, and it's the same technology that's behind Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. But it's technology that it's used in a way that you know promotes uh, an open platform that promotes greater competition and promotes uh, greater data governance. So. It just goes to show that technology by itself isn't everything. I mean, the same technology that generates, you know, data silos uh, and concentration of data and unwarranted, uh, you know, use of data could equally turn into a into a virtuous circle, and and you know, and that choice is a public policy choice. You mentioned the FedNow program, and the Fed is an accounts-based system, and it certainly doesn't involve a, um, a tokenized bearer instrument. Um, I think the jury is still out as to what the Fed's ultimate policy choices uh, will one day be. Uh, but now you've just offered an example arising in the world of tokenized uh, CBDCs. Um, and so are there different kinds of concentration issues that arise uh, based off of account-based systems? Yeah, yeah. So, so on that point, um, uh, the conclusion that we come to uh, in this chapter is that uh, an account-based system is going to be superior to a purely token-based system, because ultimately uh, individuals will need to be members of this payment network under their real names, and uh, you know, banks and payment service providers will need to do the due diligence and you know, know your customer type of checks and so on. Um, something like that is going to be essential to keep the integrity of the payment system. So um, uh, as opposed to purely token-based, where you can stay anonymous, um, uh, I think some notion of account-based real name uh, participation is going to be important. Having said that, we also um, uh, go into some detail on how you can still preserve some degree of anonymity. For example, for you know small transactions, you know the ECB has come out with some uh, some interesting ideas about you know uh, having a uh, privacy registrar where you know you have a quota of anonymous payments that you can use up. And the central bank doesn't know who you are, uh, but the privacy, <coughs> you know, registrar will of course you know know who you are. But from the central bank's point of view, of course, all those personal details are going to be hidden. So I think you know there are some interesting um, uh, uh, um, you know uh, methods for doing that. But ultimately, the backbone of the system we think is going to have to be a digital ID based uh, account based system. Uh, I'm going back to the FedNow versus CBDC discussion. Um, I think the thing to uh, to emphasize here, Chris, is that uh, uh, there, there, you know, there is a great deal of uh, you know uh, um, 
feel like family resemblance between a uh, top of the range retail fast payment system like the FedNow system, we know when it eventually comes on tap, uh, with a retail CBDC account based CBDC system. In, in fact, you know the uh, the APIs that I talked about, uh, you know this jigsaw puzzle principle of making sure that you only have access to the to the to the data that you absolutely need to uh, to execute your your transactions. That's going to be a feature both of retail CBDCs as well as these uh, fast payment systems that are already operating. I mean, the retail fast payment systems uh, that are around the world, you know, they've been a huge um, you know, uh, advance for financial inclusion. I suppose the case that's probably best known is the one in India uh, called the UPI, uh, which is based on you know, their ADAR biometric you know, a digital ID system. And then pretty much everyone has, uh, has access to the payment systems through the UPI. And he, and, and here, because of this um, um, open platform nature, any payment service provider that plugs into the system has to play by the rules. So, you know, they cannot uh, build data silos if they're a member of the system. They have to share the data. They have to follow the rules and make available the data that they, um, uh, you know, generate uh, as payment service providers in the same way that others will, will reciprocate as well. So through this kind of data reciprocation um, the idea is that you 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 have both competition as well as very rigorous you know data privacy standards. So um, you know I would say um, retail fast payment systems, conventional payment systems, and CBDCs they're really very close. If you think about how they're you know how they're designed, I mean their architecture is very very close. the The only thing about CBDCs is that they are a direct claim on the central bank, whereas in a retail fast payment system. Um, you know, they will be a claim on the bank or there'll be a claim on a non-bank payment service provider. That's the only difference. You know, just in your explanation, you know, I, I hear, uh, I guess this is fitting being over the BIS, sort of standard setting at work, you know, with data reciprocity, you know, obviously the standardization of, of um, data fields that, that would be necessary, uh, both for domestic and also cross-border uh, uh, purposes. You know, when you're looking at the experiments that that are underway, uh, you know, just briefly, I mean, are, are there any uh, core similarities that you're seeing in terms of those particular standards? Number one, and then, and then, secondly, are there any pilots, to your knowledge, that are already sort of out front and thinking about even additional layers of functionality? even uh, on top of basic money or, or, or payment infrastructure. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, I think that's really the BIS's uh, you know, strength in that we have a very good uh, view of what the central banks uh, are doing. Um, in our latest count, uh, there are something like 56 central banks who have already publicly announced some kind of you know, program of study or implementation or uh, you know, pilot going on. Um, I don't think uh, there is any kind of consensus yet on uh, a single set of uh, you know standards, but I think there is emerging uh, a broad set of uh, you know best practices about what might be uh, the most promising ways. And um, you know, one feature that I uh, mentioned earlier um, uh, on the wholesale versus retail distinction, I think there is. A growing realization that the uh, a decentralized consensus system 
might be better suited, uh, you know, when you have a small number of players, uh, you know, like commercial banks and a wholesale system. For a retail system with, uh, you know, so many users uh, and with so many, you know, data points, it's going to be, you know, very unwieldy to try and get a decentralized consensus with, you know, uh, millions, hundreds of millions, even billions of people, uh, especially given the, uh, you know, the latency that might be there when you want to get uh, a kind of, uh, you know, uh, um, consensus there. So I think there, um, it's much more likely that we'll end up with a centralized, uh, you know, ledger system. And uh, given the KYC uh, type of uh, considerations, um, it looks like a an account-based system uh, based on a digital ID uh, looks like uh, you know the most uh, promising way. Uh, of course, you know this doesn't prejudge the question of what uh, you, know, you know who will provide that digital ID. You know, is it? It doesn't have to be a government issued ID. It could be a private sector consortium led or even a private um, uh, uh, digital ID that's uh, somehow plugged in. So. So that question is still uh, um, there, um, but uh, you know I think we are making some progress on uh, what these things might look like. Which central banks do you see out front, and are there any emerging principles you're seeing? I think the um, you know the central bank of Bahamas is uh, it's a small central bank, but um, you know they uh, you know they were the first to actually roll out an operational uh, CBDC. But of the larger central banks. Uh, probably the one that's best known is the one that's uh, um, going on in China, uh, the ECNY. Uh, it used to be called uh, um, DCEP. I think the, the new name is ECNY. Uh, it is a um, uh, it is a retail CBDC, um, and uh, the the, um, uh, the architecture is a two tier system where you have uh, you know the um, uh, the private sector providers playing a very important role. And by the way, that's also a very important feature, which I should have mentioned, that the consensus that's now emerging is that uh, a model where the central bank does everything is going to be just unwieldy. Uh, there has to be a division of labor between the central bank um, and the commercial uh, providers, payment service providers, banks, and other payment service providers, where the bulk of the operational task will have to be taken on uh, by the private sector, and and that's exactly what uh, you know happens right now, um, and so the central bank is going to provide the core infrastructure uh, that uh, makes sure that we have safety, we have soundness, but um, all of the consumer-facing activities and the innovation to serve customers better is going to be done by the private sector. So that's a kind of you know very uh, strong consensus that has emerged, and you know whatever route we take, we're going to be you know. Uh, um, uh, I think having a two-tier system of some kind. So back to China, you know, they uh, they're probably the most advanced in terms of their pilots. Uh, but the other central bank that has made huge inroads here in Europe is uh, is Sweden. Uh, so the Swedish central bank, the Riksbank, uh, has made you know a great deal of progress. Probably among the European central banks, you know, they are you know, probably the leading um, uh, central bank in that respect. But uh, you, you, I'm sure you've been following the discussions at the ECB. Um, you know, and in in the Swiss National Bank as well. I mean, there is a great deal of um, uh, excitement uh, on both the technology and the use cases. I guess I'll end with the question on not uh, just technology, but also central banks. I, I mean, when we talk about money, digital or paper or gold, uh, there has to be trust in the central banks, and and along with trust in the delivery system itself and the technology, uh, central bank governance is still pretty important. What does that mean for your paper and the larger CBDC discussion? 
Yeah, Chris, I think that's been the fixed point, isn't it? So, the, so um, you know, uh, as technology has changed, uh, money has changed uh, as well. But, uh, you know, one fixed point has been the role of the central bank in all of this. So, you know, money uh, is ultimately a central bank promise. Uh, the central bank issues a unit of account. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, people use fiat in a rather kind of derogatory way. But, you know, that is a fiat currency that we're talking about. I mean, that's a unit of account. So ultimately, the trust in the currency has to be grounded in the trust in the central bank. Uh, and so, uh, you know, whatever technical progress we make, whatever different form digital currencies take, uh, the one fixed point of all of this has to be that the central bank plays this foundational role. And, uh, um, what, and what we try to do in this chapter, in this year's annual economic report, is just to, just to see how that uh, you know, mandate, how that mission uh, can be defined in this particular day and age. Yoon, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks, Chris. It was a pleasure. One of the things that struck me talking to Yoon is the realization that when it comes to CBDCs, Governance is important regulatorily as well as technologically. To be sure, you need the appropriate safeguards and technical standards for ensuring data access requirements and privacy, but how central banks themselves are governed is important as well. To have trust, in short, you'd have to feel confident that the safeguards and technical standards are being implemented in a way that is trustworthy. And that, in turn, depends on whether or not people have faith that policy decisions are being grounded in the best interests of the issuing country and stakeholders, including holders of the currency. So my hunch is that we won't know anytime soon how the race for CBDC adoption will play out, even as the technology and standards become clearer. In any event, the stakes couldn't be higher for everyday people, businesses, and yes, the global financial system. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>